Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season three of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world about masculinity, sex and relationships, and how that contributes to our self-worth. And this week is the season finale. So I went on a search for another man that also spends his time interacting with random strangers. Masked man at number 74 is the wandering poet. He spends his time writing poems for people in the park and shares his observations on strange men. In this episode, we talk about getting intimate with strangers, the unspoken danger in social situations with acquaintances or friends of friends, how hurt people hurt people, what trust means in a relationship, our lack of vocabulary to articulate the breadth of our emotions and whether there are good and bad aspects to ghosting. And in general, we discuss how to cultivate more compassion for shitty guys. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. You know, I graduated college in 2012, uh, and I knew I just, I wanted to make art. And at first I was in a band and we were very dedicated to just making music and practicing. And I chased that pretty fervently for like four or five years. And the band fell apart. Me and my remaining musical partner moved into like sort of isolated house uh, where his grandma had recently died. And we lived in this little town for a couple of years and just made a lot of music. And then uh, it just sort of fell apart. There, it, it didn't seem like it was going to lead anywhere. And we made a lot of things I was proud of, but no one was noticing. And I had a really tough breakup. I was broken up with and it really broke me. And I was sort of despondent and moved to New York to be near friends. And I got here and I was still, while I'd been living in this isolated town, I had found an online customer service job. So I was just like working this dumb online customer service job. And I put together a book of poems I had written and I like self-published it. And I was like, oh, this is all I wanna do all day is just write and edit poems. I wish there was a way to do that. And then had this idea of doing poetry in the streets. I went out and tried it. it immediately made me more money than my minimum wage job so I just started doing that wow that's amazing I mean that's so brave I think to realize that this is where I want to be and I think you know that was a quick and dirty way of describing the, the artist journey but in in doing that exercise you know was it hard to let go of the constructs of what you believed might have been you know the safer route to, mm. to living a successful life and, and choosing that? You know, it wasn't very difficult. I I mean, I've known for a long time, I didn't really want to like fit into what was expected of me. And so, I mean, also I just immediately, the money was so good that like, it wasn't like financially scary. Like I, w I had been working a minimum wage job. So like that was way more financially scary than to be suddenly making like beautiful amounts of cash every day. So I, I think like, uh, like bravery wise it, it didn't feel to me like an act of bravery it just seemed like the most obvious thing to do what I wanted to do all day and to be like making money for it and it definitely uh, took some luck in engineering and the fact that I'm like a pretty white boy to be able to do it successfully but uh, I don't I don't describe much bravery there there's an there's an element of like constant humiliation that I have to accept Rather, and I don't know if that's quite bravery, but being able to just like face down the humiliation every single day seems like an important aspect of the job. What do you mean by 
daily humiliation? Like, what happens? Well, uh, I mean, A, there's just being exposed to strangers in New York City, and there's just so many fucking weirdos who want to involve you in their sort of fucked up patterns of, of life. And so I have, I've had to learn how to really navigate uh, that constant energy coming in from weirdos and people who like don't wish me well. Um, and then there's like, to me, the even greater humiliation, but it's much uh, sort of more invisible and subtle of writing bad poems and showing people bad poems. Because uh, most artists, I think, I think the curation and editing of your work is one of the most important parts. And here I am just like handing out the first poem I wrote to 50 strangers a day. And for me, that's that's a deep humiliation that I had to sort of face and get over and recognize that like, it's okay if you write bad poems. Uh, it's okay to hand out these bad poems as long as I keep producing poems that do surprise me and that do seem good. And I don't do it very often. I do like one poem a week that I think is good, but even one poem a week seems like a pretty good rate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an excellent way to practice. I mean, I was a journalist for a while also in New York and the amount of garbage articles I had to write that I was yeah. paid very nominally for gave me the practice to write good stuff whenever oh, yeah. I got the chance to go there, right? So I would say it's all the same contribution to that exercise, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the practice is what's so beautiful about it is like when, when musicians are sort of performing in the street, they have to like perform mostly the same repertoire over and over again. But I'm just, I just get to practice in public and people pay me for it. Uh, I, wish, I wish musicians could also do that because I think if they got eight hours of practice in a day in public and were paid for it, that'd be beautiful. That's interesting that you mentioned that because I would have assumed that that's kind of the same, but you're right. Music is a lot more performative mm -hmm. to the level of perfection that it has to be at, you know, and, even and though it's the same thing over and over again. Yeah, like uh, I think about like if you could do it as a songwriter and be like composing songs live for people. But uh, what I know of the song composition process is that it really does happen sort of alone and in private. And I think it'd be hard to do that performatively in public. Whereas as a poet, I get to sort of retreat into this interior space and be writing songs for people, songs without music, but. Mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful. So how does that work? Do people approach you? Do you approach them? Um, you know what? What's the exchange? How long does it take to get a poem from you? Uh, when I started doing it, uh, m my means were very simple and I just wandered around with a clipboard and a sign that I wore that said, ask me for a poem. And I would just sort of approach people and anyone who seemed like they wanted a poem, we'd, I'd sit down and write them a poem about whatever they wanted. And now I have a table and I wait for people to approach me, which people respect more. They treat me more as an institution now, but I do miss, there was like a feralness to the interactions when I was just a wandering poet. The table really ties you down. But people do pay you a lot more if they think you're more official. And it takes, I don't know, people, it takes me like two to five minutes to quickly scrawl out whatever poem occurs to me first mm -hmm. about whatever the people ask for. That's interesting how a table just suddenly added so much credibility to you. Oh, yeah, I hate it. I, I wish I could be a feral poet, but I need to make a living and maybe eventually be able to raise children on my income. So I have to commit to whatever makes money. Yeah, and I think that also kind of hurts the integrity of being an artist, right? That you need this cre credibility 
for society to accept you and pay you what yeah, you a, believe you deserve, right? It's a difficult balance. I mean, you need to find a way of assuming that credibility without compromising what's really important to you. And like, for instance, what's really important to me is that I get to write the poems I want to write. Like I don't write rhyming Hallmark Dr. Seuss poems for people, even though that's maybe what they want. Uh, and as long as I can hold on to that, I'm sort of willing to like compromise on the rest of it. And I think every like artist pursuing their craft reaches these series of compromises and credibility and they find the balance that works for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always think of like, once you know your true self and what you want, it's a lot easier to find the confines that you're okay to work with. It's when you're not aware and mm. then you put yourself into those constructs mm. and then you're like, oh shit, I'm stuck in this thing and I'm not happy about it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It, I, I do, I also think that's what leads to, like there's some artists who really only seem to want to make money and they, they sort of are willing to compromise any aspect of the art. And I think it comes from entering this, this uh, compromising situation without knowing their true selves at all. And so it's just like, well, I can alter whatever I want and produce this art that's going to sell. And then I think you end up with this very like shallow, hollow art. People ask me for advice sometimes in the park and my advice is very boring because it's just like sit for 10 years in private and practice your art and then figure out what you like to do. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are afraid to sit in silence for that duration of time. Yeah. They'd rather get those results immediately. And that is usually by selling out to whoever the first ticket mm -hmm. goes to, right? Yeah. So don't you think that um, it would be pretty intimate to write a poem for somebody? Like, what kind of questions do you ask them? Or do you ask if it's for somebody? Like, how does that, how does that work? I usually, uh, I don't ask any questions usually, unless it seems like they really want me to ask them questions. A lot of people are looking for me to take the role of therapist and I'm happy to do that if that's what they want and they seem to be approaching it sort of genuinely. Often people come up with something they want or need to tell me um, and they tell it to me and then I write a poem based on that. Some people I think want to have that experience but are too scared to tell me what they want or need to tell me and so instead we have this sort of like stilted conversation where it's clear that they like want to open up but they can't quite and then maybe I'll try to ask questions to like let them know like you can tell me anything I'm not going to repeat this to anybody else it's not going to like you don't know me I don't know you this is perfectly the, the perfect situation to tell me whatever you need to uh, and then other people really just want like a souvenir or like a gift for a friend back home and those are my least favorite poems to write because they're just like I want a poem about friendship and I'm just like, what am I supposed to do with that? Mm -hmm. And I've realized I, if, if I need to completely ignore uh, what the person has told me in order to write a good poem, I need to do that. And it will make me happier and usually makes the other, the person receiving the poem happier if I'm able to do what I need to do to write a good poem. And you mentioned the intimacy. And I think there is an intimacy to that contact. It's this contact between strangers and it's so rare in a big city, I think, to have a moment where you really can fully engage with a stranger without holding anything back. And that's a very intimate moment. But then the actual poem writing is uh, what's the opposite of intimacy. It's just it's me completely retreating into this space where 
I'm not alone, but I'm not separate from them, but we're not intimate because there is no me or you. And just, uh, it's a very parallel space to that sort of intimacy we had just gone through. Mm-hmm. That's a, I don't think that explanation makes any sense, but I, I don't feel any intimacy in the moment of writing the poem. The intimacy is all beforehand and afterwards. Yeah, because I think at the end, it's more transactional, right? Like you're just a vessel receiving the information mm. and, and turning it out. And, and you're just the artist, you know, in that form to do so, right? It's more you're yeah. just performing a task. And all of that intimacy comes before and after of, you know, really, really those emotions. And I get the same same feelings when I when I do these interviews, you know, interviewing a lot of strangers, people that don't really know that well. Do you think that the people that come to you with a certain message in mind, you know, that it's because they can't find anyone else to, to share it with, you know, what is the magic that you would say is in interactions with strangers? Uh, yeah, I mean, some people, it's like they're in a hard place. And I think sometimes they really don't have many people to go to, and I'm someone to talk to. Uh, some people, I think it's just there's this magic to, uh, you know, strangers interacting, being able to just like have a weird, intense magic moment with someone you've just met, even if you you aren't in a sort of like desperate situation. Uh, there's something very special, I think, about that. I've now, uh, now that I've like recognized that it can happen, I try to cultivate it even when I'm not like working in public, just this awareness that like, you can just show up for people, for complete strangers in public and help them in whatever way they need to be helped or just sort of like, I don't know, you can receive what they have to give and form these connections. Yeah, isn't that that um, biblical reference on always help your neighbor in that context, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. And I think, especially in our modern world, we've created this idea that everything's a payback, like you have to give in order to receive. So there's an expectation of, of the receipt of something. Mm. Whereas, like you're saying, any, any engagement that you're going to have with a stranger, like shouldn't have anything attached to it. It should literally just be like, oh, wow, this is a magical moment. And, and that's it. But without an outcome or goal or... Yeah, without you, you benefiting from it in some way. And the, the paradox is that you do end up benefiting from it when you, when you act in that way. But you benefit because you weren't expecting to benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, strange little paradox of giving yourself entirely to strangers. Yeah. You know, I started this series with a lot of friends or acquaintances or just people that I sort of knew because I didn't know how to approach strangers yet at the start. And I felt like a lot of the people that were on the show did it as a favor to me, you know, and then there was this expectation of like, okay, well now, now I have something for you, like on you in case I want to use it at any point in time. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of ridiculous. And then I ended up realizing that I got way more value from strangers that were open to Mm. speaking out. Right. I mean, what drew me in part to the project was the fact that it's anonymous uh, and that it is just a conversation. I like a lot of people ask me to be involved in projects, but it, it always ends up, I usually end up feeling like used or like I'm supposed to be using them. I don't know. It's never a great mm-hmm. vibe, but I think the stranger on stranger contact here is very true to my project in the park. Mm-hmm. Because everything else is pretty self-promotional, right? And especially if you have a face to it, you have a name to it, there's a title, 
they're trying to sell a service, you're trying to sell a service, et cetera. And it yeah. makes sense that when we engage in different relationships, it's because it looks good, you know, or it's a projection of something that you want to look good about. Yeah. So I think when it comes to art, and that's, I think, why I've been seeking people like you, mainly artists, because in art, there is no purpose to things. So I read about you and how you noticed, I mean, there's a lot of things I'm sure that would go on in New York City, but there was pickup artists and oh, like yeah. classes on them that you saw. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me uh, about that experience. It's just, you know, it's a very organized group of men who are very self-conscious and shy and sort of have this like incel vibe of like thinking that they that they really want female attention, but they've never gotten it and they feel like they sort of deserve to get it. And so they end up becoming part of this community that says to them, hey, like, I'll teach you how to do this. I'll teach you how to get female attention and how to keep it and how to, like, get what you want from it, which is sex. And I only really became aware of them a year or two into doing this. And I sit in the park all day. I'm just sort of watching what goes on. And I had to just watch these men go after woman after woman just targeting them like people who are just sitting alone and like reading a book and then make them feel incredibly uncomfortable and then eventually like leave but not they wouldn't leave at the first sign of discomfort they would only leave when like it reached some sort of like head of the woman being like like you need to get out of my space and then like just all of my female friends I would talk to them about it and they'd be like oh yeah like that happens to me like all the time I wish somebody could just like cut that off. I wish like it wasn't acceptable. And I was like, oh yeah, like the park is my community. It's where I do my work. You've got to like police good behavior in your community. And so I started just intervening whenever I saw it happening and really trying to put the focus entirely on the men and like even physically, I'll like put my back to the women. And I usually go up and ask the men if they're willing to be interviewed about a project I'm doing on pickup artists. And it just so immediately derails what they're doing that they end up leaving and then they become aware of me and the fact that I'm going to do that. And suddenly there's this zone in the park where there's no pickup artists because they know that if they come, I'm going to intervene. And I have this dream that at some point more people will feel comfortable like policing their community. And eventually there will be no place for the pickup artists to, to do their activity because everyone will see them and know what they're doing and feel safe intervening. I, I hate it. I they, they really prey on like the kindness of humans in a way I, that really prickles me. It's like a lot of people I see them interacting with wish they would just go away and wish they could tell them to go away without maybe incurring the threat of male violence. And then I talk to them about it and they're so blind about the power dynamic because they're so hurt and they're so shy and they feel like, oh, like I'm finally like taking ownership of my, my masculinity. And I'm like, bruh, you're just like making tons of people uncomfortable. But the, the problem is it is a cult. There's these like charismatic leaders who are getting thousands of dollars because they lead classes to teach these like shy loser guys how to talk to women. And I think cults are very hard to deprogram people from. Yeah. And I think what worries me is that the ultimate outcome isn't love. It's sex, you know, and it's manipulation oh, yeah. over another human, right? Oh, yeah. It'd be different if it's like, here are some dating tips to find the love of your life or to feel fulfilled in your life or to find the you know, oh, best yeah. partner for you, right? There'd be a way of approaching it that would be very similar, but like 
completely different where you could like approach people and sort of talk to them. But if you weren't trying to get anything out of it, it wouldn't feel so ugly and it wouldn't feel like you were a predator. And this is what I sometimes tell the pickup artists. I'm like, listen, like if you want to do this, like do this, but with everyone you see, do not selectively target women you find pretty, like go up to absolutely everyone and engage with them. And you will find what you're looking for, which is like the ability to like cultivate human contact, but they're not interested in doing that. They just want to target women they find pretty. Of course, again, yeah. right? We're talking about people that want results and the ones that are willing to sell out and thinking that this is everything that will work. Yeah. And it's crazy, like even in the very first season of these series, a lot of men were talking to me about like, oh, you can't be genuine on the first time you meet because you won't get the second time. You know, mm. and then that was already the belief system of like, you have to wear a mask, mm. you know, it and ma- it makes me so sad. It makes me so sad that people believe that and believe that like they in their like sort of authentic self don't deserve love and like can't acquire what they so desperately need because like they hate themselves because they think other people will hate them. And I just wish there was a way of telling them like, no, listen, like you got to just like commit to being yourself. It's only going to dig your hole deeper if you start pretending. Exactly. And then you'll have to keep wearing more masks to upkeep, right? Yeah. And I think that has been a huge struggle for me as a female host. Just like, dude, everyone around you loves you and is really trying to reach out to you. And you just keep adding more and more walls because you're so afraid you've gone this far now mm. that you'd have to literally tear down every single wall, which would yeah. be exhausting. Yeah, I've, I've put some thought into how I could go about deprogramming the pickup artists. Mm-hmm. And the problem is it would, I think, require a lot of time. And first it would require them to like, trust me. And I think that's the, the biggest step because if pickup teaches you anything, it's don't trust anybody, manipulate them. You can't rely on women because women are all like liars and women are all just trying to like get the richest man they can find. And so you have to pretend to be the richest man, the most high value man. And it's like, it just leaves you completely unable to trust anybody. So I don't really see a way of deprogramming them that wouldn't require devoting way more attention than I actually want to. Mm -hmm. Because I don't like, I can't be the one who rehabilitates all these broken men. Absolutely. And I believe it also shouldn't be your role, right? Because it's, it's up to them to really find themselves in that, in that aspect. But, you know, I think, one thing that we can do is just give compassion because that's all all we can have available. I've been, right? I've been really working on that because my first response is like anger and disgust. Uh, and I'm trying to cultivate more compassion for them as like shy, like broken men and trying to see them and feel that rather than just feel the like tense disgust I usually feel. And how is that working? (laughs) It's, oh, it's hard. But uh, I mean, like any uh, spiritual practice, it's just, you keep doing it. (laughs) You keep practicing and then it becomes easier. I had this one guy just tell me about his relationship with some woman. And of course this was offline. He wasn't uh, one of the people I interviewed. And just because I was doing a podcast on men and didn't ask him to be on the show yet at the time, he just started throwing all of these generalizations about, um, you know, women only just have to be pretty. 
they don't have to be rich you know oh, yeah. all of these things and I was like wow this guy truly believes in all this and he's saying it at me as yeah. if I represent all women and I was just like this person is disgusting like mm-hmm. I want to leave this room I don't want to be here and I was like what am I doing here why am I staying here and again this is just like someone taking advantage or at least how I was thinking taking advantage of my kindness of just being in this space but then I thought like this is a test. You know, how do I do better? How do I give compassion? And I had to imagine him as myself, you know, because I was pretty hateful towards men before I started this podcast, right? And realizing, like, I probably threw all of those sweeping generalizations about men and, you know, did the same same thing, right? Mm. It doesn't matter if I was more justified or not. It's just the yeah. fact that I thought that way, you know, and could not trust another human being because of that, right? And then... um most recently in Mexico, like, I think the hardest thing now that I've kind of come to terms with strangers is acquaintances or like people that you sort of kind of know, mm. because I so think you, that's the most unsafe situations, you know, when, yeah. when you are now tied because, oh, this is a friend of a friend that you actually have to be nice to because technically at the park, you can walk away. Yeah. I mean, but, like the women that are approached. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. They can like leave a public space you know and yeah. like as much as you can intervene hopefully you've done enough that that person won't follow her when she leaves the public yeah. place right but yeah with an acquaintance it's it's this like dangerous closeness yeah because there's you might have exchanged phone numbers or facebook accounts or something you might have seen family friends they might know where you live to some degree right and now there's a new fear factor of that mm-hmm. refusal to to participate and i think that's what I've grown to, to realize is the real danger because like mm. stranger danger, you can recognize that when you see someone feeling uncomfortable, when you see like an act of violence, right? Like yeah. there's, there's, I think a lot of ways that third party bystanders can now recognize yeah. at least in 2021. So with your experience now doing that and kind of, you know, going through your community and seeing that, how would you like to see how the future might unfold where we can take it one step further to you know, not only strangers and people you don't know and that you don't have an affinity to, but to people that you might have even a loose connection to. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because people end up sort of in these affinity groups. They like attract the people who are like them. And so like, I, I'm ready to like call out any, if I was at a party and I saw some shit go, like that was making someone uncomfortable, like I'd step the fuck in. But like, I don't, go to parties with those sorts of people now and the people who like do know those people I think know those people and are friends with them in part because they're not willing to call their bullshit they're not willing to call them out uh so that makes it difficult just in terms of like how do I this uh awareness needs to go very deep because you need even people who aren't it, it can't just be like 1% of people are really aware. It needs to be like 50%. Like it needs to be a large thing so that all of these groups get this regulation through calling out bullshit. I, I don't know how you do that. I, I hope the slow tide of awareness and people talking about it changes things, but I'm not particularly optimistic. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have an example. And let's see, I want to hear what your thoughts are on. So this actually did happen to me like a couple of weeks ago. I met some friends and they introduced me to this guy who's a Mexican local. And he was kind of helping them translate for some business that they were working on. So we're all hanging out. I've already met him. I've met his girlfriend. I've driven in his car. You know, I've, I've had some loose connection to him. 
Mm-hmm. So I know who he is and they end up leaving. So I'm like, whatever, I'll be with this guy for like an hour or two tops. You know, it's not a big deal. I've already met this person. We're all hanging out. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Within that 90 minutes, you know, he just starts trying to touch me inappropriately. He starts trying to make a move on me. And every instance, I'm like nicely saying, stop, right? Yeah. Like, no, this is done. And he Which is pretty- unfortunate because, I mean... You, it should just be like one fierce no, and then he backs the fuck off. But there's always like the looming threat of, of male violence, I feel like. It makes people resort to kindnesses. Exactly. And I was looking at the surroundings. Conveniently, we were in this place where there was just us and a young woman behind the bar. And I'm like, great. Like, what is she going to do? Right? There's no one else here. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to just cut this short because where is this going? Right? Yeah. So. I first tried to reason to him. So I said, hey, like, why are you doing this? And he was like, because I like you. I'm like, you don't like me. You just want me to like you, you know? And it, this is a whole validation exercise, which just went way above his head. So I was like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. I'm going to pay the tab because I don't know if he's going to uh, stiff her. So she doesn't deserve that. I'm going to do that yeah. and leave. And I went to the bathroom, which is around the bar. And uh, the wash, the washing station is co-ed, I guess. So I come out of the stall and I'm washing my hands. I'm staring at the um, mirror and I'm washing my hands. And he comes behind, like to the bar, to the bathroom and just starts groping me. And I'm watching myself be molested. And then that was it for me. I was just like, I just like flung my arms away and I just like left. And even after that, I left, I called the guys and I was like, I don't know what you guys want to do with this guy, but I'm out for the night. Um, however, like he's drunk as fuck and he just like went on his motorcycle and could potentially, you know, hurt himself or others. So maybe check up on him, you know? And what upset me was, or not what upset me, I think what worried me the most was how the guys responded because who the fuck cares about what the Mexican guy's going to do, right? Like we don't have much of an affiliation to that, but in terms of consequences, can I trust that these guys are going to fire him? Yeah. Can I trust that he's that they're going to call him out? That any of this kind of stuff? Or are they just going to be like, oh, Amanda made things kind of complicated. We're just going to remove Amanda. Yeah. Right? Because who... Is that, what they, is that what they did? I don't know. Oh. But this is the thing, right? And, and yeah. I was like, I, I'm not going to leave without speaking to them to see, you know, how they, how they act and, and yeah. what's going on. And they said two things that really bugged me. One thing was, you know, don't worry, you'll never have to see him again. That's not the point. If you did that, then you delete everything from from the whole experience. Yeah. And then um, another thing was, I'm sorry on his behalf. You know, and it's like, you can't, you can't take, and, and I know that these are people that want to be allies that are trying, but how does that, how does that make me feel? And Oh yeah, that's bad. And then I got a, I got an apology from the Mexican and I also got some messages from the guys saying like, yeah, you know, we spoke to him. He's supposed to send you an apology, all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, all of these men are conversing about a situation that happened mm. to me. Yeah. And they're just conversing about the situation and how to handle it. Right. So I think this is how a lot of men deal with allegations, whether it's oh, true yeah. or false. Right. And Definitely. it's like, Oh, let's figure out the, let's strategize on the best you know, situation and, and how then, to like, do hone it. a good apology that like doesn't require changing any of our behavior. Yeah. Right. So I think that was like, at the end of the day, I'm still searching. Like, I don't know what the best 
way to deal with it is. I was actually surprised that the guys were very open to speaking to me and asking me, like, how would you have rather it played out? And I'd actually don't have an answer. But I'm curious to hear what you would have done in that situation if you were those guys. Uh, I mean, I think you need to, like, immediately tell the guy who groped you, listen, like, this is inappropriate. We can't have any sort of, like, professional or personal, like, friendship contact with you until you make this right. And making it right isn't just an apology. It's, like, somehow actually going through the process of making sure this never happens again. And until then, we can't expose anyone we know to you because you are a danger. And I feel like that's the very first step is just recognizing like we're on your team to you saying we're on your team. Like this is like, we're, we're cutting him out until he like can change his behavior. We're open to him changing his behavior, but like we're going to make sure it's a process that like we actually see through and that he's actually like going to commit to. I think that would have been an appropriate response. But again, like I, I'm not particularly optimistic maybe on like a hundred year scale, this sort of thing can change. But like, I think you just have, we have a deeply embedded sense of, of men sticking together and sort of like doing damage control when women experience sexual violence. Yeah, because I mean, besides damage control, I think it's convenience, right? Oh it's, yeah. It's a yeah. lot easier to just be like, let's make sure she's okay. And I think there's another thing where, unfortunately, when women do say that they're okay-ish, then that's enough. You know, we can move on to the next topic, and then we never have to talk about this again. And that's not the point, right? There, there needs to be consistency of, like, bringing that conversation back up to yeah. make sure that oh, yeah. you still are. And I think this is an interesting question for you. When someone or when, when mostly women come back to you in a relationship and they're just like, hey, like, are we okay? And then you have this conversation and then they will ask again, are we okay? Maybe a week later, maybe a month later. Do you feel like that is suggesting something or is it just like, do you take like, it as a, as a normal check-in? Oh, uh, I mean, I have a, a very serious girlfriend right now and we do, we do very regular like check-ins about how we're feeling about various things, how we're feeling about each other. Uh, to me, it seems like a very obvious, like, ongoing process of, like, keeping a channel of communication open because everything is so dynamic and things are changing, even if you're just sort of, it's a month where, like, nothing really, nothing big happens. I think it's very important to keep these channels open because we we are aging, we're racing towards this giant transformation, and we need to keep tabs on each other as we're going through these changes. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question very simply, like, I think it's opening those channels is very important. And I think that requires a lot of trust, right? So has has that been a space where you've just been okay to trust? Or did you have to get to that point? Mm, I mean, I think about my like history of relationships. And I, my parents got divorced when I was 13. And I think that really did something deeply psychological to me. And I had trouble trusting, I think, maybe for until I was, you know, 19, 20, 21. But then I feel like I am a very naturally trusting person. I only like to surround myself with people who I can just like implicitly put my full trust in. And I found my way back to that in romantic relationships. And it's I just sort of like I, I couldn't imagine being with someone who I couldn't trust in that way right from the get go. I feel like that's the, one of the 
defining characteristics of all of the big relationships I've had is just this deep trust from very early on. What does trust look like for you? Hmm. That's hard. That's a hard question. To me, it's just, it's a feeling of home. It's a feeling of uh, safety and warmth and sexiness and uh, like full personhood and knowing that I will be seen in my fullness and that they are being seen in their fullness and that's going on simultaneously and mutually. I mean, it's a very complex thing, but to me, maybe it comes down to like this, this sense of home, this sense of like we together define a safe place where we can both be our full selves. Mm -hmm. I think there comes like a sense of sureness, like certainty of where you stand. Mm. And I think both sides need to be sure of where they stand in order to both be sure where they stand, right? I, I, the thing is, I don't know if I ever feel that sureness. Uh, I feel like I'll, I live a lot of my life in a lot of doubt. Uh, and it's all sort of unresolved and sh constantly shifting. And I, I wish it was sureness, but uh, it's very difficult to pretend that it is sureness. And I like won't pretend for people. I, I, I don't know what it is about that, about me. My partner has a similar stance where we're both I mean, if, if we wanted to talk about it astrologically, we're both water signs just swirling around and very liquid and we're able to like embrace that, that doubt and that swirl in each other. Mm -hmm. I love that water energy. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then is it the sureness of the uncertainty of knowing that like there will always be doubts and uncertainty and being okay with that? To me, the, the sureness is that we aren't going to be mean to each other. I feel like maybe that's a very simple definition of trust is that like you aren't going to try to be mean to me. You aren't going to try to hurt me. I see a lot of relationships where people will lash out at each other in this pettiness. It's like you did something to me, so now I'm gonna do something to you. Or like, I'm gonna do this thing because I, I know it will like sting in some way. And that I think is just an erosion of trust. So, I mean, however me and my partner shift and change, I feel like we trust that we will not try to be mean to each other. We will not be petty. We will not try to hurt each other. And if we were to find ourselves feeling that urge to hurt each other, we would talk about it and keep that channel open about why that dynamic was developing and try to root out its causes rather than just letting the symptom take off into into a bad cycle. Mm -hmm. I think that's, even though that sounds like a basic need to just not be mean to people, I think intrinsically a lot of us are hurt people and mm -hmm. hurt people are going to hurt people with mostly self-sabotaging things, but in their self-sabotage, they mm -hmm. will hurt others, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone is ever going to try to do that. So how would you describe intentionality in making a conscious effort to not be mean if that might be your natural defense mechanism? Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I would like to take back completely the not <laughs> mean each other. I think the important thing is more what I ended, where the point I ended up at, which is that when you feel yourself like being mean to the other person, you need to ask what, where is this coming from and why am I feeling this way? rather than just acting through all of the meanness. Uh, and I think that sort of questioning 
if it's directed honestly, usually directs back to your own hurts and you need to learn to address those rather than just acting them out on other people. Mm -hmm. So I recently read that self-reflection or introspection has been mainly a feminized term because men traditionally didn't think about prevention. It was kind of after the fact, you know, seek forgiveness rather than asking for permission, right? So mm -hmm. it's always like after the fact. And if I can physically do something in this instant, then everything can be solved mm -hmm. versus that introspective, self-reflective state is more of a mental, you know, reflective space. And I think because you're an artist and you're a writer that actually you are more engaged in that space. So just curiously out of your opinion on that, like, do you think you are naturally more inclined to do that self-reflection than most men that you in interact with? I mean, I think uh, more than most humans, I am like super neurotically self-aware of my own thought processes and the things that cause them and that they cause. I do, I think I have a different understanding of this like history of self-reflection, but maybe it's because a lot of the self-reflectors who are big in my own personal mythology are in like some sort of like religious tradition, whether they're like Zen Buddhist monks or Thomas Merton's a, a Catholic monk, but like there's this sort of like monkly tradition of introspection that has uh, traditionally been often restricted to men, but it is at odds, I think, with the sort of classic American hot dog masculinity. But I, I do, I, re I recognize a masculine tradition of introspection that I feel like I am maybe a part of, in addition to the, the, the female tradition of introspection. I don't think they're very, really actually separate. I think it's all, yeah. all the same. Well, I think that's interesting because you said that that's more of a, a spiritual journey. And I think there's more of a moralistic high ground to that, right? Which then would be deemed as more masculine, right? As a more mm. powerful space to be in. And, and desirable if that's the journey that the man takes, right? Mm. In his hero's journey. I like that. Uh, right. I like that. Uh, yeah. Like, what would, what would it look like if uh, we insisted that only women could be monks and that we had a long literary tradition of, of female monks uh, rather than rather than the men? These are, these are the sorts of experiments I really want to run. Uh, I feel like it's important that we, like, uh, maybe see what the next, like, few thousand years of history would be like if we just didn't have men involved. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I think just those what-if experiments, right, to see the difference in how people might interact differently. Yeah, I mean, they're hard to do. You certainly would require, like, the sort of global national planning that we're very bad at. But if, like, we could just set aside one country and say, okay, like, we, we, first we need to get the technology to the point where women can reproduce without any sperm involved. Um, <laughs> which I think we must be pretty close to. I think maybe we could even do it now if we really pushed. Uh, and then we set aside one country and uh, no men, just exclusively women and, you know, like allow free immigration and emigration to and from the country that people want to enter or leave. Uh, but just no men born for like maybe a thousand years, 2000 years. I think that'd be a very important experiment. And I think in addition to that, what do you then think that the role is for men in today's society? See, I just, I don't know if I have a strong sense of like men have a role. Cause I do, I keep returning to just like the absurdity that like a lot of the 
difference I see is like this ridiculous flapping cock between most men's legs. And like, that's a sort of ridiculous thing to define a role around or like the sort of like statistical differences where like men tend to be taller or stronger. Like those, like who cares? Like we have machinery, we don't really need that. I don't see a like distinctive role for men, which I think is troubling to people who have a, are really engaged with the way we've historically defined a distinctive role for men. But to me, it's just so unnecessary. There's no, there's no like, characteristic difference to me that makes either men or women like naturally suited for certain things. I think all of our thoughts about that are very deeply uh, societally tied. So I, I'm not sure how to answer that other than just sort of deny the premise of the question. Yeah, I mean, that's totally fair that you don't think that there is a role anymore. And I think, yeah, there's, it's problematic because some people that still want a role are confused. Oh yeah, I mean, people love being told uh, exactly where to fit, but you just can't do that unless you want to lie to people. Yeah, mm -hmm. no roles, no roles for men anymore. I think it's easier when the roles are defined to say you agree or disagree and being in those roles. When there is no role, then you have to do a little bit more thinking in either accepting that there's no role and like just carving your own path or trying to bring back the old roles. Yeah, I know what you mean, but I also to me it's very simple. Like, it, I don't see it as a complicated like thing to say. Oh, I don't have a role because I'm a man anymore. Like, we have human roles. We have these deeply human like we have various archetypes that you can buy into that aren't split up by your genitalia or the way you prefer to dress. Like, they're just aspects of being human. Mm. I mean, there there is a part of me that's heartbroken that I'll never get to experience giving birth but like that's fine I'm it's a small heartbreak okay why is that something desirable I, I'm just I think I'm interested in the full breadth of human experience uh and the fact that there are things in the human experience that are like just denied to me but makes me chafe at the bit it'd be like sort of like if someone was like oh you can never fall in love you can never like experience jealousy you can never experience anger, which I'm sort of bad at already. I'm trying to get better at experiencing my anger. That's interesting that you say that you're working on experiencing your anger, because I would say that's probably the most popular expression. Oh, yeah. A lot of people right. are very good at experiencing their anger. But I, for me, only recently have I been able to even admit that I like anger is something that occurs to me but I'm, I'm so quick to sort of sublimate it into various other things. But I mean, it's an open question to me whether there is an anger that doesn't include violence um, and whether that sort of like violence, this anger is something that I can experience uh, and that won't just cause negative patterns to be sent out into the world. Mm -hmm. the, the closest model I have is this sort of like this sort of fierce anger about huge problems that like these sort of big structural problems, whether it's uh, like, I think about like being upset about uh, the world being made an uninhabitable by corporations. Like, I think there's an anger there that I can sort of allow myself to experience because it's not tied to potential violence toward any specific other human being, though it does make me want to be an eco-terrorist. 
I don't know. A anger is still something I'm really I'm thinking through and trying to figure out what to do with. So are you describing anger as an immediate response to being some kind of violent or physical aspect attached to the feeling of anger? Or can well, anger just be like upsetness or frustration or annoyance? Well, I think that's my question is like, is, is there an anger that doesn't include violence? Because I think I, I don't want to experience, I don't want to cause violence in the world. I don't want to hurt people. And a lot of the expressions of anger I'm familiar with include violence. It includes like screaming at your partner. It includes like hitting your children. And I don't, that's not something that interests me at all. So I wonder if you take the violence out, what's left of anger? Well, I would say that anger would, is just a reflection of pain, right? And the pain can be expressed through anger physically mm. or not physically right but well, I do I do think there's there's lots of ways of experiencing pain and maybe anger is one sort of mode of experiencing pain but certainly not the only one yeah and I would say that it could also be our lack of vocabulary that we mm. we that we result in calling everything that is painful anger because it's easier to say you're angry at something than that you're sad about something or Mm. unhappy about something right yeah those are harder to express yeah we don't have the vocabulary I mean, in some sense we like don't even have the grammar for doing some of these talking about some of these emotions i feel like that's what i hope poetry can be good for is developing some of that vocabulary and grammar i think another interesting emotion is fear because mm -hmm. fear can be translated just as many ways as pain can be, right? And I think that's also a lack of vocabulary, grammar, and expressing what fear is, because fear is what actually makes us perform an action or do something. It's, you know, in re response to something, right? Mm. I'm not sure if I agree in that. I, I think you can act, you can experience the fear, let the fear go, and then act not out of the fear. And I actually, like, I often feel like when people are letting action flow from fear, they often don't take the right course of action. Um, I mean, there are times when it's such an immediate connection and like you just let your fear completely direct your actions and you get immediately to safety and those sorts of like immediate threats. I think fear, it can be very useful, but I see people responding to much sort of like larger structural threats through fear. And I, I, I often see people making what I think are wrong decisions because of that. What's, uh, what's an example? Okay. Yeah. Um, what's a good example? What's a good personal example? Uh, I mean, let's say you, uh, you have a job and you really don't like your job and you want to have a new job. There's, you could face that that situation and sort of figure out what you need to do within it to get to where you want to be. Uh, or there's another way where you are in that situation and then the fear sets in of like, what if I need this job? Like, what if I'm going to like lose my house if I don't have this job? And there's a fear that can really inflect all of your thinking about this problem and then you're no longer able to make the like clear headed move towards the job you want. Instead, suddenly you're locked in your job because you've let the fear direct how you want to act. And I think it is, uh, it's, it's useful sometimes. We need, we need a self-preservation instinct and fear 
often serves as that, but it also, I think, ends up just locking people into patterns that aren't good. Yeah, and I think going back to our earlier conversations about just that we're not in a space where it's like life or death, like you losing your job or leaving your job isn't life or death. You're mm-hmm. going to find a new job, you just apply and then and deal with it. There's systems in place that can help people that are unemployed, and we mm-hmm. just don't default to that. You know, we're just so focused on like, oh, but what if I lose my job now and I can't find another one, yeah. right? But I think the fear is really in life or death situations that is when we should be talking about fear, but we throw in the life or death miss of any mm. interaction, even though they're, you're they're like not, not threatened at all. Yeah. 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 We need to like respect fear and save it for when it's really needed. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are like, Oh my God, our life is over. If this, if this happens or this doesn't happen. And my question to you is really in relationships, you know, on reputation. If you if you lose this relationship that you've maybe been in for like 10 years, you know, oh my God, if I do this, then what will people think? Mm. You know, which is crazy because that's, you're living this. Like no one else is in your relationship. And here yeah. you are thinking like, oh, what if someone else is gonna think differently of me if I cut yeah. it off now? I mean, to me, that's that's an absurd reason to stay in a relationship. And it like, to me, it sort of betrays the trust of the other person. It's like, if you don't want to be with them they should know that and if you're lying to them because you're worried about how other people will perceive it like you've you're missing that very basic element of trust mm-hmm. and I mean I don't know if you hear that often but a lot of my my female friends say that to me you know like what will people think or I've worked too hard for this you know I've worked on this man for this long so I don't want to start all over again you know mm-hmm. and again it's all of this fear based on maybe it's again back to convenience or just the fact that like I don't have, I don't want to start all over again because mm-hmm. starting all over again apparently seems worse than continuing on with, you know, whatever misfortune you're already in. I think we're also, we're very, it's difficult for us to praise the endings of things, even though the endings are so important, but like death, we're terrified of the end of a relationship we're terrified of, but like, these are very important moments that we need to learn how to appreciate because like ending a relationship like there can be a life cycle to a relationship. It doesn't need to last for your entire life to be like intense and beautiful and meaningful. But we don't have, I think, a good vocabulary yet for like praising a five-year relationship that you end up breaking up, but it still was a beautiful, important thing. I think people are get sort of locked into a like infinity or nothing mindset. Yeah, and it's also the comfort, right? I do think what I've experienced lately in terms of just the culture of just transactional relationships and people coming in and out of relationships or in situationships or not even real relationships anymore Mm -hmm. that there is no ending so there's even less of a respect for that because it's like oh someone can just like not exist for a year and then come back into your phone or like a year later with no repercussions you know like yeah i do think I want to stand up. For, I think ghosting is good harm reduction sometimes, but it does lead to these like endingless situationships. Mm-hmm. But I do. I think ghosting sometimes is very good. Pra- a very good practice. <laughs> Why would you th- say that? That's a good practice. Uh, people are always getting down on ghosting, but I think like if you go on a date and it's a bad date, like you don't like. Sometimes the most painless way of exiting the other person's life is just to like you both mutually stop texting each other 
well I think that makes sense if it's mutually not texting each other and you both kind of know that that's happening and it's like a slow fade oh yeah the the, the one-sided ghost uh yeah that's one-sided that's disrespectful but I think the two-sided ghost can be very good yeah and I think also if if that's only based on like one or two short instances but if you decided that you were going to commit to some level or there was at least a consistency of a duration of time, mm-hmm. then it would be normal. Like even if you had a relationship with your hairdresser for three weeks, you know, oh, yeah. like you would at least say, Hey, I'm not going to go with you anymore. I'm going to go with yeah, yeah. my hairdresser. Right. You want to put a period on things. You want to have the punctuation in place. Um, <laughs> exactly. And if we miss the punctuation, we end up with all these like floating feelings of like, what if, what if that actually is going to pick up again? What if my hairdresser is going to come back? Mm-hmm. But yeah. So I, I, I would like to reverse my statement. I think ghosting is bad. I think we need the punctuation. Okay. Do you think it's more painful for the ghoster or the ghosty? Uh, I think it depends on the situation. I think there's a lot of, I think there are situations where it's m- more pain, it would be more painful for the person getting ghosted if instead it was like a direct clear statement of why the person doesn't want to be with you anymore. Uh, you like sort of end up, I, I feel like I'm, I'm imagining a scene in a movie where someone's getting broken up with and they're like, tell me why, tell me like what I did, like, what is it about me? And I feel like that's a very natural impulse we have is like, what, like, what, like, what is, it must be something about me that caused this to happen. But it's like, no, like you, you two just like weren't meant to be together. You don't need to go looking for things to change about yourself. Like it just wasn't meant to be this way. And in that way, I think it, like the ghosting avoids that moment of, you demanding explanations for why you're being broken up with but I don't think we need those answers oh exactly yeah I think I think those are questions we shouldn't even bother asking because they're so ridiculous yeah and that's what I mean like the if if that is the only pain as the ghosty you can eradicate that by just saying like it doesn't matter right so I would say that the ghosty doesn't really feel anything out of it it's kind of like oh this random person is really immature with their feelings or expression right but the the ghoster has to sit with that constantly like should i should i interact now tomorrow mm-hmm. next week mm-hmm. next month next year like this, this never ends for that person well, well, right? so i think maybe we can develop a sense of like you know intentional ghosting and like conscious ghosting that mm-hmm. uh is respectful and then there's the like the ghosting that's just you trying to avoid having to say something directly and that's that's like sort of subconscious ghosting that's bad <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that actually does help differentiate the two, right? Because yeah. I do believe that people that ghost because they can't express themselves maturely enough, maybe it they is would, a good a good sign for them to yeah, to, they, to do that, right? They would benefit from learning to do, yeah, to address those feelings. They would, um, but not everyone is yeah. ready to verbally express themselves yet emotionally. Oh yeah, but you gotta okay. you you gotta just fling yourself into it and do it. How would you? advise someone on doing that because I think I mean most of this show is about men that are unable to express themselves emotionally Mm, I mean I think it's difficult emotions are not things that language is good at pinning down and we like pretend they are sometimes and we pretend we can say like I'm sad about this but like really like it's so much more involved like you're sad about this but that's because it's a symptom of this even deeper hurt which is a symptom of this thing that happened to you in childhood and they're all related to each other and you have to address them all at the same time and the only tool you have to do that is like flapping your mouth at your partner it's very it's a very difficult situation and I think the only way to do it is just to 
like dive into speaking your truth, speaking your truth in quotes, uh, and be very attentive to what that stirs up in you and uh, not believing too much in what you say because you need to be uh, attentive and available to change your mind about what you're saying. I think there's a danger of like, we, we say things and then we commit to them as if like we were able to say the truth the first time. But I think it takes revision. It takes reevaluating what whether or not you actually meant what you said and in light of the new facts that have become apparent. And people aren't good at that. People want neat, tidy answers. They want to be able to like say the thing and mean it the first time and not have to readdress it because in fact, this is a like much deeper issue. People don't like the, the messiness of that. But all you have to do is just be attentive. And I think that goes back to your your idea of sureness or non-sureness and certainty, right? Mm. And wanting to revise mm-hmm. poems, right? And then also being able to do them on the spot. And even in this conversation, there's been so many times that you retracted your earlier statement, which honestly no one's ever done on the show. Oh, you know? yeah. I think it's important. Uh, I mean, I do it sort of playfully sometimes because it allows me to say like... uh. Ma- to get the hot take out there, but not actually commit myself to the hot take. But I think it's an important personal practice. It's like, don't be so sure about what you say. Like, it, it's going to change the whole, it's, it's a very dynamic process. Uh, and that's why, I mean, we were talking about like doing check-ins with partners. And I think that's very important because the situation is constantly evolving. It's not, it's not true. It's not still true a week later because you said it. It's like that truth is constantly being being adjusted exactly and and that's the thing that you know it's interesting that we're so afraid of change when change is like literally the only thing that is constant for us yeah but it's terrifying it's fucking terrifying yeah yeah it's insane this has been such a cool chat i want to wrap up with a couple questions okay what would you say is your definition of integrity or living a life of integrity Hmm. i mean i think a simple answer is like don't do things that you wouldn't tell everyone about if you're going to talk about your friends in a certain way, like do it in a way that you would also be willing to do if they were going to be played a recording of that. Uh, and certainly I don't always do that. I like to gossip about friends. Um, but I think, you know, if we were all being recorded and all the recordings were shared at once, I think a lot of those friends would understand that gossip is beautiful and maybe it initially would be hurt. I'm just, I'm trying to, I, I feel very defensive about my gossiping and I'd like to defend it. But. <laughs> Okay. While still being a, a man of integrity. <laughs> well, I think there's also just you saying earlier, the playfulness about like your words, not always meaning exactly the way that you said them and that you can change your words literally in an instant. Right. So you might have thought some really shitty things, but I think in the admittance and comfort in that, you know, like you thought this way and now you think differently. Yeah. Should be so, fine I to mean, say, right. It should be fine to say, but like, unless it's backed up by like actual action, it's all like flapping lips. I hate, I hate this age of like, like apologies passing for action and like statements about racism passing for like actions against structural racism. Like we just, I mean, we're living in the age of the notes app apology and just like, I want to see some like actual like work being done. What would um, an appropriate action be beyond an apology? I mean, I think there's a, a space being carved out by like restorative justice movements of like what like justice looks like if it's 
being it's not part of this like punitive prison industrial complex uh and i think it extends to like the situation with your friends and the guy who molested you it's like like this is an, an instance where like we need fucking restorative justice we don't need him to just be like issue a, an apology like we don't need him to be punished we want him to not be able to harm people and to like own that and change in ways that will ensure he doesn't harm people and i think that requires so much more education and an actual discipline and desire yeah. to change right I'm, Which, I'm not very optimistic that we're going to get <laughs> there but i'd like to keep trying yeah my next question to you is what did you think of me when you first met me versus now after our conversation uh I mean, I first met you, we talked on the phone and I was like in the city and I was kind of busy and distracted. I, I try not to think about people. Like I really try not to like build up too much about them. Like I didn't like look up who you were or anything. I think it's much easier to encounter someone if you're going into it without really like thinking you know who they are. So I try to do very little of that and let who they are fill in exclusively through the the exchange so sorry I'm again I feel like I'm doing a lot of just like denying the premise of your question rather than answering it I guess like how did you feel before and after the interview I would say when I talked to you on the phone I wasn't sure how uh like sensitive the the conversation was going to be I thought maybe you had like more of a like a direction you wanted it to go and so far it's just been like a completely deranged freewheeling conversation mm -hmm. which i really appreciate i think that's the the best way a commute of conversation can go so it's not it's not a good answer to your question but <laughs> i mean i'm glad that you appreciate the freedom of it right because normally yeah there would be show notes there would be more direction at least right yeah but i don't think that makes for uh getting to the juicy moments. I think to get to the juicy moments, there needs to be a lot of a lot of freedom. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why I, I continue this approach, right? Because then you, you get to that and sometimes you don't. And mm -hmm. that's still worthwhile, you know, yeah. at least the journey, right? My last question to you is, I know we talked about a, a bunch of subjects. So was there any topics that jumped out at you that you'd like to invite another man to elaborate on in another episode on the show? Hmm. I mean, I'm interested in the question of like, what role do men have now? Because it seems to me really like I can't imagine a possible role for a man. And like when I hear about men talk about like being protectors, I'm like, oh my God, you're a ridiculous, silly human. Uh, so I, I would sort of be interested in hearing someone like give a really good case for like what role men are supposed to have. Cause I've yet to hear one that like doesn't make me think they're ridiculous masculinists mm -hmm. yeah i think like in even in the question right that kind of rolls up into the masculine traits right mm -hmm. and and then believing that you do need a role as a man right so yeah um, yeah i think that's a, a fun topic to definitely get into i mean the thing is that most people who talk about it and like think they have an answer for it i like it makes me cringe because i'm like come on like you don't need to have a role as a man so, but if you, if you could find, if there was someone who's really offering a good faith explanation of what they thought men's role should be, I mean, I can sort of imagine a role being defined in part by the statistical physical differences where it's like, you need men to be like, uh, the ones to put things on higher shelves generally, like, and so men should be like taking jobs where they have to reach more, reach higher <laughs> shelves. 
Uh, but that's, I mean, we have step ladders. We don't really need that anymore. I mean, I personally think the role for men now is to really be allies for everyone else, you know? And I, though, I do think there's a form of allyship mm -hmm. uh, that looks a lot like allyship, but doesn't change the structures that are in place, um, mm -hmm. which is why we, again, like, like, like the note sap apologies to like statements about like, like being an ally, I feel like unless you're like showing up with actual action, like it's meaningless. And unfortunately, I feel like the, like the the whole our, our framework of vocabulary around it has been so perverted that like, when I hear ally now, I think about like this sort of like, corporate, like, <laughs> feminism yeah. that doesn't isn't interested in actually changing anything. It just sort of wants to like, woke wash our our capitalism yeah it's just for show yeah mm -hmm. but I, I i agree i think the role for men right now is step the fuck back uh and maybe like die off and allow yourselves to like be exterminated as a as a subset of our species in in the current description of what that is i think but um i, I do believe there is some availability for cohabitation it's just needs maybe to... it's not obvious to me that that's true like <laughs> I, I don't value having men just because like we have had men I don't I guess maybe it's complicated because I don't like enjoy I don't like sleep with men so I don't see a particular need for them and maybe people who enjoy sleeping with men would want to keep some men around just for that purpose I, I, I guess the way I think of it is all humans are all humans right it's just there, there could be better ways for us to operate in better mm -hmm. harmony with each oh, other, definitely. right? Versus, I think that is one very easy approach to just be like, oh, let's all like ship them off somewhere, right? But yeah, that's, that's true. It might be too, it might be too strict a an attempt <laughs> to answer the question. But I think, yeah, I think, I think there's some levels like there, there is like there needs to be better consequences for actions that men have done or are continuing to do that are better than an apology. And then on the second side, you know, how are we all gonna lead in with better compassion for overall everyone? Yeah, which uh, I think the reason I tend towards an exterminationist view <laughs> is because I am not particularly hopeful that that's possible based on the history of the human species so far. But like, I, I think we maybe I, we could be surprised uh, but it does seem like either some sort of like domestication process is going to have to happen or some sort of like exterminationist solution because men men are, are a huge problem right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I've been, I've been trying to lead with more compassion. You know, that's why I started the show and mm. I've, I've been surprised. You know, mm. so I, I do feel more hopeful these days than I was before, but on a global sense, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, we can only do so much. Yeah, and I think there is a, there's a, a fierce compassion that doesn't, isn't always gentle that I think could be very useful for dealing with men. Hmm. Could it be that I have cultivated more compassion for men than some men have? I never thought I'd be in this position, especially if you've heard some of the episodes in season one. I guess it's true though, the phrase that change begins within. Without changing myself, I wouldn't be here today having some of the most authentic and honest conversations I've ever had with strange men. 
Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chan on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.